why don't we take some of these convolutional neural networks? Why don't we take some of these new approaches with machine learning instead of traditional photogrammetric techniques or computer vision techniques? What if we apply machine learning? If we you know, train a model on this is what an asphalt shingle roof looks like. This is what a hip roof looks like. This is what a gable roof looks like. Um, this is what a flat roof looks like. You know, if we can train these models, maybe they can do a far better job, do it far more efficiently. Some of those traditional photogrammetry techniques are very high from a compute perspective. Not that machine learning isn't also high from a compute perspective. But the bottom line was, in our case, it's really about teaching and training models on what certain things insurers predominantly really need and know to care about and being able to detect and you know, accurately predict the presence or lack thereof of those things inside imagery. Hey everyone, welcome to Brains Behind AI, show where we meet the innovators, entrepreneurs, and the real brains behind some of the most successful AI startups. We ask them about their journey from coming up with the idea to finding the product market fit. And from their experience, draw a set of principles that we can take away to ours. This is your host, Ari. Thank you for spending time with us. And now, let the show begin. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Brains Behind AI. I am really, really excited for today's episode. Today, we have John Isaac Clark also known as JC. He's the CEO of Arturo, an AI property analytics company that helps insurance carriers improve the accuracy and speed of decision-making across claims, underwriting, pricing, and renewals. JC possesses more than 10 years in geographical and location-based analytics with a startup background and experience. Formerly, JC was the head of commercial product at Digital Globe and considers himself a recovering software engineer. JC, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Natalie. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me this morning. Yeah, JC, that's an impressive background. So before we dive into the startup, we want to hear about your personal journey. Where did it start with software and software engineering, and then how did it lead you to, to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely, Ari. Thanks for asking. My background really started uh, very young, self-taught programmer. Admittedly, it was just basic when I was eight years old. I was always fascinated by computers and technology. My father was in the industry before there was an industry. And I became really passionate about building things with technology. Um, I had the privilege of joining a startup in Chicago at a very young age. I was 19 at the time. Kind of one of those classic drop out of college, uh, go do a startup. We had some pretty good success. I ended up in San Francisco and Austin for uh, a number of years um, as I kind of went through the dot-com era, working with companies from WebMD to E-Trade to Dr. Coop, which was a casualty of the dot-com age as well. <laughs> but it really gave me a lot of exposure to entrepreneurialism, the entire kind of startup culture. But over time, I really became more interested on the, the what and the why versus the how. So software engineering, you know, it's about, you know, generally from my, my view is, how are we going to build this, right? But from an entrepreneurial perspective, I wondered, why are we building this? What's the value we're creating with this? What is it that is needed? Which turns out to be very much product management. So over time, through one of my last startups, T-Sciences, which worked very closely with Google Earth and Google Maps, I moved and began gravitating much more towards the product side than the uh, software engineering side. Though I still... 
as mentioned, consider myself a recovering software engineer. I love to do little projects here and there, but mostly personal. That's a little bit how I went from the software engineering side to kind of end up where I am now the CEO for an AI company, which is a pretty interesting journey. And now let's talk about the company, right? Where did that idea started? How did you come up with it? Where the team came up with it? Yeah, absolutely. I think to answer that um, effectively, I got to go back to that startup T Sciences that worked with Google, uh, Earth and Google Maps. So in 2006, my brother and I co-founded a company called T Sciences that uh, within a very short period of our formation, and really through serendipity versus planning, ended up having the opportunity to work very closely, closely with Google right after they had purchased Keyhole, the company that became Google Earth, and were beginning to just invest incredibly heavily in mapping. Two of the founders there, Brian McClendon and Michael T. Jones, or MTJ as he's affectionately known, had come into Google and were just passionate about mapping. As a matter of fact, there's a story where MTJ, uh, Michael T. Jones tells, tells Larry and Sergey, I don't really care how much you're going to pay for our company. I want you to promise me that you'll spend a billion dollars on buying satellite imagery so I, we can have this picture of the world in 3D that's never been had before. And so Google, as we know, things like Google Maps, Directions, Street View just blew up from 2006 and now. And it now powers everything from Waze to Amazon deliveries to just you know DoorDash, Uber, so many things in us in our personal life. Um, as consumers. What really struck me in that company, uh, T-Sciences, where we worked with Google, was that we as consumers were having these very, very powerful tools, and they were creating new business models like DoorDash and Uber, which, you know, if you didn't, you couldn't really go find a driver and hand them a set of maps and create Uber, right? That just wouldn't work. But as consumers, we had all these abilities, but as enterprise businesses, there wasn't anything comparable. There wasn't a way that this, this geospatial location-based information had fundamentally changed the way they did business. So when the, the business at T-Sciences was in the process of exiting is when I went to Digital Globe, which at the time was, uh, and still is, the world's largest commercial satellite imaging company. And if you ever use your Google Maps and turn on satellite mode, or if you have a, a Chromecast device in your house and let it just play pictures, you'll inevitably see these really beautiful satellite images and it says copyright Digital Globe. Digital Globe was building out a capability that they asked me to lead as uh, had a product for platform that was applying AI and machine learning and big data analytics to 175 petabytes of imagery going back 17 years over the surface of the planet. And this is obviously a lot of the content that you see in Google Earth, Google Maps, Apple Maps, etc. But they were the goal was not to show people the images. The goal was how do we get information out of these images, right? How do we use machine learning just like you can have a machine learning algorithm or, or model learn that's a cat, the cat video, or I think in my case, there were some cats playing around just that. <laughs> How could you extract interesting things like where roads are, where populations are? And this to me was a step in the right direction, right? This is a step towards having something transformative for an enterprise. So I had the opportunity to lead that. It was more of a platform style play where people would come in, they would write their own algorithms or create their own AI models and then run it in this environment on imagery. And that sounded like a really great idea, except there's a great quote, when someone tells you they want a quarter-inch drill bit, what they're really looking for is a quarter-inch hole. And so we had created this place to, to do this stuff, but what people really want is the solution at the other end of it, right? They do, they do not want necessarily to have to build it all themselves. However, along the way, I had the opportunity to really understand that there was potential here. So one of my customers that was using that product, uh, which was called GBDX, 
was a little company, uh, turns out to be a Fortune 500 company, the American Family Insurance. And American Family Insurance said, hey, we'd like to show you what we're doing with this product that you have, along with some other things we've built. Um, so I went to meet with them, and what I discovered was just blew my mind. American Family Insurance had kind of taken the product that I had created on the satellite imaging side, GBDX. They had taken aerial imagery and their own machine learning models, and they'd even taken ground-level imagery, all of properties, right, of, of residential properties. And what they had done is created a capability that, I think at the time, it was like 20, 30 seconds, but they would reach out and they would fetch all these images of the property from satellite, from aerial, from ground. They would run them through these deep learning models and they would create structured data like you would get if you sent an inspector out to the property about how many stories is it? What's the perimeter of the building? What type of roof is it? What type of roof material? What's the condition of that roof? How many windows? Where's the vegetation? Are there sidewalks? Are there pools? And they were doing this all with just machine learning from the latest images available to the property in around 20, 30 seconds turning into structured data, just like they would when they go to make a quote on a property and take that information and now feed it in there, or when they're going to renew the property, when there's a claim on the property. And this was like really amazing to me and exciting because here was a way to do what I've been longing to do for a long time and passionate about doing since I began working with Google through my other startup in a business that took this type of information from other places, but now could you know, create it from images um, and other data sources and use it in the workflow directly, right? And in fact, today, 97% of our API calls of Arturo's products, the image is never provided to the customer. They don't care about the image. They care about the information of it, and that's completely transactional. Today, we do that in under seven seconds. Wow, that's a very fascinating journey. And I'm going to go now circle into Arturo. And how did you come up with that name? Uh, everybody always asks that question, so I'm glad you did because I have the answer to it. So when we were uh, first spinning the business out for American Family, we did what any good corporate spin-out does and picked a bunch of names and then got some uh, uh, focus groups together. I, I, won't, uh, I won't share with you some of the other names. <laughs> I think well, Datology, I think, was one candidate name for a moment. Arturo, as a word, actually is Celtic, and it means courageous, noble, or brave. And I think when we were spinning out from you know, a large company to become a tiny company. When you think about changing the way this information is captured and how it can be trusted inside, you know, insurers who by job uh, or by definition of jobs to manage risk, the term or the word Arturo meant some things that we as a team felt really excited and strongly about defining kind of our, uh, our core values and us as a business. And out of the many names that we selected, it actually tested the focus group. So it also had Arturo.ai as a as an available domain name, right? So uh, it kind of met all the criteria. At the end of the day, though, you know, concept of being courageous, noble, you know, trustworthy were, were really aspects of what we wanted to do as a business that the name represented, and that's how we became Arturo AI. This is very interesting, right? You're working on a technology. You meet a company that's supplying it in a unique way, and you see see a valuable use case. On, on why the technology and, and how it can help the industry there. So you, you're mentioning, did you go create a small company? Did you pull in people from that company? How did that structure happen? And where did you go from there once you found the technology and you said that it needs to be set up as its own company? Great question. Yeah, you know, this is where um, things aren't always easy, right? And so as you know, American Family had created this unique set of technology that 
they wanted to take out their thesis was, well, if this is driving so much value for American family, it could drive value for many insurers around the, the world, certainly in the United States. Also, though, at the end of the day, we're a property analytics company, though that's applied today to the insurance, the residential property and casualty insurance market. We were in conversations uh, just as recently as last night with banking and lending, right? If I'm going to value the property, not insure it, many of those things that make it insurable also contribute to its value. So things like condition, things like you know number of story size are all things that you can kind of take in and say, is, is this property worth this much in this market? So what we did though was, okay, we have this technology, we need to spin it out. So there's a number of team members who I'm fortunate to say are still with us today, two uh, gentlemen specifically, Brad and Matt on our machine learning team, who had along with others been a part of this for a long time, like two years prior to spin out and worked you know, to develop the initial technology. And, and again, there were some others alongside of them that we basically took and we slowly started spinning people out from inside American Families Research Group into Arturo. They became into our employees, their, their founding employees. Um, you know, I'm proud to say they are shareholders in our business as well. So we began moving the team out and then we had to figure out something that a, a big Fortune 500 with armies of lawyers that also has to be an insurer did have some challenges figuring out was how do we assign out this intellectual property? Oh gosh, right? Like, wait, we're, we're, we're taking our intellectual property and we're putting out another company. And you know, so that ended up being um, a more complicated process than certainly I had hoped it would be. I, I think my board told me when they first came out, oh, don't worry. You know, I started August 6th of 2018. And I think they're like, oh, by October, this will be done and you'll be raising money. And I think we didn't really start our raise until like May. <laughs> so like, you know, seven months later, but that gave us a really unique opportunity to also begin going to market, listening to customers. We were kind of in stealth mode at that point, but we were able to engage with companies like Hippo Insurance, one of our longest standing customers, kind of our first customer outside of American family. And while that IP agreement and, you know, negotiation was all you know, being figured out by armies of high powered and highly paid lawyers, we were also really understanding how to take a product that sat inside one company as more of a research capability that they were just using internally themselves to a product that would work across a number of companies, right? A number of insurers and use case, learning new use cases. So ultimately, though, the business did get spun out from American Family. We closed our Series A, $8 million, led by Crosslink Capital in the uh, February of this year. And at that point, we're fully 100% out of American family, a separate entity completely. So we can serve as customers now in the US and international markets, which we've also managed to build great relationships and great customers since then. It's a little bit about how we got there. It wasn't always easy. Yeah, it, it never is, right? I'm just curious, did American family also participated in the Series A round? Are they also the investors or are they only bringing the intellectual property? No, American Family is an investor, though they're, they are not a majority shareholder in the business. So um, they, they don't have any, they don't have controlling interest. They do, though, in the way kind of we were looking at how would this be done. Well, I don't want to obviously get into details on our mm -hmm. cap table. Specifically, what I can say is a lot of it was the intellectual property that AmFam had created that came to the business. In exchange, they uh, received equity in the business for the transfer of that intellectual property. They also are one of our largest customers. So they continue to use the technology. Obviously, once it's spun out, now they no longer own it. So if they want to have continued use, they license it and they pay for it, even though they're a shareholder in the business for spinning it out. But one of the interesting machinations of corporate spin out land is you know, they still want to use the technology that's exiting their business. Uh, so they're also a very large customer. Yeah, no, it's always best, right? I say having having your biggest customer as your 
to shareholder and as your partner is is always the best thing. It's a win-win for everyone. That's excellent. And let's move forward. And as you sort of came together and you have raised the funding, you've built the team, what was the the whole focus? Was it, hey, the technology is there, let's figure out how to take it to market? Or was it, let's still perfect the technology and let's build out some key use cases? Just want to understand, was it more development or was it more sales and marketing? Uh, You know, I think it was really both. All right, to be honest. So I think when we first came out of American Family in stealth mode, right, before you know, everything was fully locked out and Series A was done, right, the process was how do you first figure out the use cases that this technology could be applied to outside American Family? Now, all insurers, in, in my view, in my experience, do things similarly. It's a regulated industry, right? So you can't come up and be like, here's how we're going to do insurance. It's going to be totally different. And, you know, nationwide can't say we're going to do it totally different than State Farm. They're very, they're very, they're, they're similar processes. Insurance is a very old industry, but where American Family was applying the technology uh, to, let's say, price a property better or decide when, you know, if there's things that have changed when it's being underwritten or when the property comes up for renewal, we were learning whether or not those use cases would work for others. Years, you know, insure techs like Hippo rapidly growing. I mean, we've been working with them since they were very small, and now they're you know, a unicorn status, you know, billion plus valuation. Fantastic growth. But now, since they've grown so rapidly and have great customer acquisition, now they're finding themselves, they first cared about how do we price a property really accurately and really quickly, provide a fantastic experience for their user or their customers. Now they're also having people, that are, their policies are renewing, right? So our first part was taking the technology that was designed to serve one customer, American family, and making it scalable so we could be serving dozens or hundreds of customers in time. So that was more of the software engineering side, making the platform and the infrastructure more robust to handle more inbound API requests. We're, we're largely an API business, though we are doing what we'll talk about in a minute called large-scale analysis. We actually announced two days ago, we processed with Suncorp 8.7 million, nearly 9 million properties in every residential property in Australia uh, within two days, within 48 hours. That's something that as little as a year ago would have taken, well, I was at Digital Globe two years ago. Doing that took almost a year and a half <laughs> to build out a data set like that. We did it two days. Now, technology obviously advances, but we had put a lot of effort in our engineering team under the leadership of Dr. Tuttle, Ben Tuttle, our, our CTO. And how do we make this incredibly scalable? So if somebody came to us and wanted to like run 9 million properties, run a country, run every property in their book, that we could do that. So it was really a combination of Take the soft, take software engineering and build up our infrastructure to support growth, but also to figure out from a product market fit, where is the ability to suck in all these images of a property and understand what's happening, what's its condition, use our proprietary kind of condition and uh, data that we also license from the American family. And then how do you scale that from a software engineering perspective? So you could serve a lot of customers at once. So it's kind of both. Is that helpful? Yeah, no, that's, that's very helpful. And that makes sense. Now, diving a little bit into the artificial intelligence, the AI part, can you talk about what is the core application of artificial intelligence in, in your application and the software that you're building? To do that, I'll, I'll take a step back to before the application of AI and ML in our business. So, you know, inside images, using images to understand properties or do mapping, right, is nothing novel or new, right? For years, people have stood on high objects and looked down and (laughs) said, okay, there goes a road, right? As the world evolved to add satellites and aircraft, 
those images were taken and again, used for mapping and planning. There's a whole study or science of what's called photogrammetry uh, and remote sensing, which is how do you take these images and turn them into other products or how do you extract feature information from them? Over time, that discipline started looking at concepts of computer vision before true machine learning, convolutional neural nets, et cetera, were useful or uh, able to be useful. And what happened, I think, was really uh, at American Family, uh, one of our advisory board members, uh, Dr. Marty Buheim, who was the actual founder of this idea at American Family, happens to hold a PhD in photogrammetry and remote sensing, but also then went and did something else for 20 years of his career, including working at IBM, and kind of didn't you know, do a lot with that remote sensing PhD, but he did a lot of other really unique things around technology. And I think he suddenly had this aha moment where, you know, kind of, this was a pre 2014 timeframe, Jeffrey Hinton's work was, you know, coming out and being talked about a lot. And I think he was just like, wait a minute, why don't we take some of these convolutional neural nets? Why don't we take some of this new approaches with machine learning instead of traditional photogrammetric techniques or computer vision techniques? So what if we apply machine learning? If we, you know, train a model on, this is what an asphalt shingle roof looks like. This is what a hip roof looks like. This is what a gable roof looks like. Um, this is what a flat roof looks like. You know, if we can train these models, maybe they can do a far better job, do it far more efficiently. Some of those traditional photogrammetry techniques are very high from a compute perspective. Not that machine learning isn't also high from a compute perspective. But the bottom line was, it was in our case, it's really about teaching and training models on what certain things insurers predominantly really need and know to care about and being able to detect and you know pr accurately predict the presence or lack thereof of those things inside imagery and what makes it a little challenging is every image from every different type of image provider is generally shot with a different camera or a different sensor so this means that if you train a model on image provider a view down of your property and then image provider b comes and takes another picture of that which you need to have is high model transference right and your models need to be able to work between multiple uh, providers this is a really big challenge but it's one where we focused really heavily because if you can do that your insurance customers don't care whose pictures are they they're going to use right they want the latest they want the highest resolution they want to be able to tell the most about that property so a lot of our work also goes into from machine learning perspective creating and focusing around high model transference, as well as some tooling that enables us to, if we do need to do some retraining around a new or unique type of image, how can we do that you know, as fast as possible in order to add in this you know, kind of new data source or new set of images around a property very, very quickly. But fundamentally, we're training models, sometimes with very, very proprietary training data, like every inspection or a bunch of claims history, policy history from and AmFam, American Family, or at times, even some of the other customers we have now will provide us that to help us make sure the models can really understand it and categorize it accurately every time. No, thank you for that. And thank you for explaining more about the AI. And that kind of transitions into my next question, because we know that Arturo announced the delivery of nearly 9 million AI-generated property characteristics to your client, Suncorp. So we would love to know more about that. Um, have they been a longtime client with you? Is this a new client? And um, how are you using AI um, in assisting Suncorp in Australia and New Zealand? Thanks for acknowledging that. Something we're certainly very proud of and also very appreciative uh, for having a brand like Suncorp as one of our customers. So I think, you know, with, um, I want to be careful with obviously all of our customers. I 
would never uh, want to kind of share what their secret sauce is. Um, but what I can talk about is, you know, the ability to take machine learning and um, unlike American Family, when we started, right, we were focused on doing things on a per property basis, right? So literally an address would come in and it would be like, okay, go find those images, uh, analyze them through the machine learning and spit back the information very, very quickly. And in this case, it was, here's 8 million, here's 9 million properties, right? Let's analyze them all. So that required a different approach. But I also think it unlocks really, really cool use cases. So if you would think about what you could do as an insurer, you know, obviously Suncorp does no insurer insures every residential property in the country. You know, it would enable them to do some really, really creative things for their business that you just couldn't do if you didn't have a highly accurate set of information created at a, a countrywide scale. And we were part of a very long process and a very thorough process. My hat's off to the Suncorp team, Andrew, Luke, Sean, for the the rigor that they apply to us and frankly, many of our competitors uh, to get to the point where they validated our, our product and our approach as better than anyone else in the world, uh, which is exciting. And then said, okay, this is kind of now that we validate it, where our business thinks we can get the biggest lift is by running pretty much everything and then applying that in their business in a way that would enable them to go fast with that new type of information to better support their customers, better manage their risk, et cetera. Yeah, no, that's excellent. That's amazing. And I'm just thinking, right, all that your company has gone through to get to that point to achieve that success. So can you touch on what are some of the key challenges that you tackled in your journey to get to where you are, where you have this validated product and markets that's scaling fast? Wow. Where do, which one do I pick? Yeah. You know, I think there's a few I could talk about. I think that Many people, when it comes to, and this is, I find some irony of this, machine learning and AI, and even, you know, the AI and machine learning startup world, you know, I think there's, you know, oftentimes this perception that a lot of things having to do with AI and ML are about replacing humans, right? It's like, oh, it's going to like, you know, replace other things, right? And, and then I think, you know, lay people who don't know a lot about it are like, you know, you work in AI? Oh, isn't that going to be taking away my job? But at the end of the day, and, and not that some of those things you know, may not be outcomes that, that this type of technology facilitates, but at the end of the day, I think one of the funniest things uh, or most ironic things is this is um, building startups are actually all about people. They're about the importance of people. They're about the relationships with, you have with people, whether those people be your customers, whether those people be your teammates. And no matter what you're using machine learning and AI to do, if you're a company that's trying to do something, that's your, your startup, by definition, it all is really about the people. So I think recognizing that as a startup, I'm a first-time CEO. Well, I've been a co-founder several times uh, or a founder you know, of much smaller businesses or of businesses that are, were much, became much larger than we are now. I'm doing this for the first time, you know, this role as CEO. So I'm learning too, right? And I'm certainly have got things wrong, have made mistakes as, you know, have members of my team. But I think it's how you go through that as a team, how you learn to grow, how you, with COVID, manage to, you know, have a sense of togetherness when none of us can be, <laughs> have all been really, I think, uh, interesting things that I sometimes chuckle about since we're you know, an AI company. And a lot of people off the street think we're replacing people or, you know, some point we're part of that, right? But at the end of the day, it's all, everything we're doing is all about our people, right? And the people we interact with. So I think learning and recognizing that was, was really um, probably one of the, the challenges we went through, especially as we, we've, we've gone through COVID while growing the 
company. I mean, we have people that I've, that I've hired, that our teams hired, that even none of us have ever been in the same room together in person at all. We have customers like our dear friends at Suncorp that spent a great deal of money with us for the work we did with them, which we're deeply appreciative, that we've never once been in person with, right? So at the end of the day, the building those relationships with people, communicating the value of your product and still building a relationship with a customer who trusts you or with team members who are building it for you uh, is still really, really important and certainly has been a challenge. But I think that's acknowledging and recognize that lets you put time and effort behind it. Uh, we just brought on a chief people officer, Michelle Joseph, MJ, as uh, she likes to be called, just as I like to be called JC, where we realized that to make our business as successful as we could, again, it's about our people. It's about the people and focus there. And so we're making investments there, being critical, you know, self-critical, introspective, like how can we be better? How can we create a great team? But also looking out, you know, creating a great customer success team that is going to be there to work with our customers, their people too, to make sure that they're being successful with our technology, not just hand over the fence API and say, good luck, you know, drive those loss ratios down, Arturo, yay. Um, but how do we really understand what your business is trying to do and how can our product be really impactful? And that's, you know, led to customers doubling their revenue with us in one year, you know, like from what they originally thought they were going to do to up, we're doubling it um, because I think of our desire to, um, to work with them again as people. No, thank you. And I think that's been such a theme that we've seen throughout Brains Behind AI, just talking with people about the, the relationships and finding that synergy. And that's what it's about. It's about the people and serving. But taking it back now to just you. So you're a CEO. This is your first time being a CEO. Have you had to shift your mindset in any way or personally, how has this affected you? Has it been, have you had to learn any techniques maybe to to transition to being a CEO, transition through the world of COVID during this time? Uh, I could write a book with the things I've had to learn uh, to, to <laughs> this, in, this, in this role, in this job. It's yeah. been really exciting, certainly, and uh, very, very challenging. Also, in many ways, very fulfilling. You know, I think one of the things that I, I kind of end up as a person, just who I am personally, with, with kind of these rubrics that I kind of fall back on. So, for instance, when we think about where we should be from a focused perspective on our product. One of the things I tell our team is we want to be best at what we can be better than anybody else at. So that means like, what's that one thing we can do better than anybody else and just laser focus on it. Being someone who's led $150 million plus in product for like Digital Globe, now Maxar, which was like across 16, 24, I can't even remember how many different products that you know, were, I was leading, had a fantastic product team there. But you know, you're doing a lot of different things with satellite imagery. You're selling it, you're getting data out of it, you're training the maps, you know, there was, there was all these use cases. Here at Arturo, you know, focus is one of the things that, that I've learned is important. And that rubric, we want to be best at we can be better than anyone else at, which we believe is using machine learning and AI on images of properties to provide the most insight and information about what is happening there. Now, those images may be LiDAR uh, from iPhone 12s next year, right? You know, as more consumers have them. But it's not, you know, what could we do with weather and AI? Or, oh, what could we do? With, let's be a self-driving car company, right? We want to just focus on that property, the use of images or remotely sensed information about that property and machine learning to understand what's there and what's happening. So that's one of the first. I think, you know, one thing that I've also had to learn, this goes back to people, is learning to trust and empower your team. I think that as a CEO who goes from a company that has no people, like literally the company was founded when I joined, I was employee zero. There was nobody else. It was me. 
to then bringing on team members, building out members of my leadership team, you know, Neil Pearson, my chief strategy officer who came from CoreLogic, obviously a a company that services the insurance and lending industries uh, greatly. Ben, Dr. Tuttle, now MJ, and empowering them to execute, you know, kind of what their ownership is in the business and for them to empower and trust the team members underneath them as we grow and scale. The third thing is that <laughs> by definition, well, this is really funny uh, to me, I've been doing startups for close to 20 years now. If you're successful, you kind of create process and you grow to a certain stage. And then because you're successful, you're still growing, that process and structure falls apart. And so you're kind of moving from like chaos to not chaos, to chaos, to not chaos. And you kind of do this, you're your step function. And so by definition, every time you feel like you figured it out, <laughs> it's not going to work. You're going to need to change or scale up. Now, there's ways I think with startups to, to plan for growth and to recognize that, but it is de- by definition, you're going from one set of challenges, figuring out how to solve those. And once you're solved, yay, we got this work, but now you're growing even bigger. So you have new challenges up, oh, we got to solve a challenge. So it's a constant process. And I encourage my team to remember that the fact that we must work through those organizational growth issues means we're having the success we wanted to have, right? Means we've accomplished what we set out to accomplish. So I think sometimes people may think, oh, it's just one more challenge to accomplish. That is the definition of building a startup is moving from accomplishment of one challenge to another to another to your way to success. To me, there is no such thing as success. It's that you continue to grow and evolve. The business is success. That is, you're doing success then. No, that is great advice indeed. Now, as, as we think about the, the company and your technology, I can, as you were speaking, I was thinking about all the endless options that can scale into now, now that you have that technology. Right? You mentioned even getting into weather and, and tracking that and images and all that. So as a business, as a company, where do you see your focus, say, three years from now and then five years from now? Are you going to stay focused in the insurance property space? Are you looking at other ways to scale? Where are you scaling? Yeah, really, really great question. You know, this is kind of where I, I get my crystal ball out. Let me find it down here. It's interesting being now, I'm almost embarrassed to admit, you know, two decades in the high tech world. I've noticed trends, things that tend to repeat themselves that I, you know, I got to kind of cut my teeth on things like clients or mainframe computing was one of the first things I was exposed to. And granted, I, I, at a very young age, uh, I'm only 42 for the record, um, but you know, I saw this paradigm in computing that was like mainframe and then all these terminals connect to it. Then I saw client server, which is like you have desktops and you have a single smaller server. Then the internet happened, right? Now there's web applications, which in some ways, like the cloud, if you think about it, it's like a huge mainframe connected to all these little terminals, which are web browsers. So I see these kind of paradigms repeating themselves, right? Mobiles, you know, a whole new transformative thing. So from my view, we as a business need to grow beyond just insurance because the better we understand physical properties in the real world, there's a whole nother set of industries that all can benefit from that. As I mentioned earlier, you know, lending is probably you know, automated valuation for a property. How do you value it from these multiple images? In seconds, you don't have to go send out an inspector appraiser. Or maybe there's some issues with the property that you don't know unless you would have sent out an inspector. I had this personally happen to me when buying a home here in, in Dallas, where I'd gone all the way through the process, you know, made offer, accepted the offer, everything great. And then they you know, did the inspection and it was like, you know, oh, there's a whole big roof issue. And in the backyard, there was like some, some uh, issue where there was a... Um, 
you could have seen it from the air, basically uh, an issue at the fence line, right? And I I was just devastated because I'd been four weeks to get to this point. You think you're buying a home, right? And in seconds, our technology today would have identified both of those issues. And I would have known I shouldn't even be looking at this home or you know that it should kick back when I try to apply for the loan, but this house has issues, right? Those are use cases I see us moving into uh, you know, in the future. Although again, to the be best at what you can be better than anybody else at, I also want to maintain focus so that we're not trying to do like four different go-to markets at once, right? We're a 30, 35 person company today. You know, as we get to our series B and you know, put more resources to our go-to-market team, we'll be able to, I think, begin addressing some of those markets effectively. But we're having fantastic success right now. We can barely keep up with uh, the customer demand and interest. And I also you know, want to be very careful not to do what I saw happen in the 90s, which is you're just growing for the sake of growing and you just want the customer's revenue. You don't want the customers, you don't care about the customer success. And that's death and dangerous to any company that's not paying attention. So when companies come in like Suncorp, who want us to do this thing that's huge and we see big dollar signs, what we also need to do, and we did, is make sure they got that they got what they paid for, right? Deliver on what you said you could. And so we also want to be able to continue to focus on that. So I think we will move to the lending side, certainly commercial properties, not residential, right? Shopping malls, office, you know, campuses, uh, you know, things like that are kind of the next way for us. We hope to make some exciting uh, announcements ar- around our work there, probably in Q1 of next year. So it's going to, once you can now do residential buildings and commercial buildings, you know, now suddenly you also could do a lot of other things for a lot of other industries, right? Again, though, synthesizing it down, we're still just taking images of properties, right? We're understanding that we're repeating that core. I would say that when I think about the future of, of this type of business, you know, drones have certainly been and hyped for a long time. I think we all admit now that regulation and them running into people, places, or things has stymied the their growth. But what is will at some point happen? I believe is there will be these means of delivery. COVID is driving advancement. I think relaxation in that. And at some point, instead of thinking that we can just grab an aerial image of a property or a satellite image, the future in my mind is one, if you see the sci-fi movies where the drones are all just buzzing about, where we're actually collecting information about a property from the drone as they just pass over your house. It's like dipping your toe into a data stream if you own that house or if you insure that house. And you're getting updates about what's going on constantly. If we think about, I mean, in in my loft here, I've got dozens of wise interior and exterior cameras, right? They're sitting there right now. Well, well, there's certainly privacy uh, topics. There's no reason why machine learning approaches that are looking at things that might involve risk to the property that may completely blur out the human. But, you know, if you say detect fire in an image, right, which I have a fireplace going in the background, but, you know, it's not in a fireplace, eh, you know, sound, you know, call 911, let the homeowner know. There's a number of things that I think are going to continue to take that paradigm of images and machine learning about a structure and a space with tons of data points coming back that we can do new things with uh, three and five years from now. Yeah, no, definitely. Like I said, the opportunities are endless there. So I'm going to ask you something that personally has been on my mind for some time. And as you sell AI and, and any cutting edge technology to business and you're in the B2B space, one of the things I've experienced and I've seen is there is this reluctance and resistance to a new technology or a new way of doing things because especially in most B2B corporations and the bigger ones, they're used to doing things the the certain way and that's how it has always been done. 
So what has your experience selling B2B and what advice would you have for aspiring entrepreneurs that are interested in, in, in selling B2B, especially when it comes to artificial intelligence? One of the things that we realized early on was that the ability for a customer to trust the outputs from machine learning and know when they should trust them and when they shouldn't trust them was really, really important. And so one of the things we invested pretty heavily in, again, early days, was a confidence framework. And there's a great blog that one of our team members wrote on our uh, Arturo website, if uh, any of your listeners want to learn more about that, that really what our confidence framework is designed to do is to inform the customer or give them kind of a threshold on how confident we are that if they went out to that property and they looked at what our machine learning models predicted, how often would that be true? So that confidence score is like for this, if you go and look, what's our confidence that that would be true? So this now gives customers something unique. It gives them another signal. We've worked very, very hard to, to refine this framework and uh, one of our team members, Matt Sokoloff, um, has worked really, really hard on, on this um, and done a really great job, along with support from other members of the team, I'm sure, Gareth, Brad, and others. But it's really about giving them a way to tell when to trust. Because at the end of the day, machine learning, I mean, these are predictions. These are inferences, right? Everything you get, it's not a, it's not a truth. In the, it's a prediction. It's a model predicting you know, that this is there or this is not there. So the confidence framework, laying that on top, enables our customers to say things like, if we have a lower confidence score, and that could be any number of things that goes into our confidence framework model itself, it could be like there's really bad shadows in the image. It can mean like on our roof material prediction, is it shingle, is it metal, is it tile, is it wood? There was a tree hanging over the roof, and we know that there should be some roof underneath there. We don't know the model could predict what was there because it's obstructed, so we have a lower confidence on the overall confidence our prediction on the roof material because we couldn't see the whole roof. But this has given our customers, especially our enterprise customers, who are needing information about these things and have been you know, using other sources for it for some time to trust it and find that it's validatable in ways that enable them to trust and use it. And I think that's been really, really helpful on our enterprise sales side. Because we're a small company, but generally selling to major corporations, right? You know, Fortune 500 or above, and with generally multi-year, multi-million-dollar agreements around the type of product that we we offer. So when you say you can do that, you must be doing something right. And I think that's something right is showing, giving the customer a way to prove to their business and to the people that are depending on them to make the right decisions with this data that they that this is highly useful. One of our customers, I wish I could name them, unfortunately, I cannot. But I, I really appreciate what they did. They went to their employees, had us analyze their employees' homes. Then they went and looked at the confidence scores and they went to the employees and say, okay, we want you to go outside, right? And is this correct? And, and, how, and they found that there was an extremely high correlation across thousands of people, thousands of properties, when they went to personally validate that confidence score. And now that gives them confidence to go to their leadership and say, this is really good. Makes sense. Wow. Oh, thank you. I did want to ask, what advice do you have for industry leaders? That's a good question. Uh, for industry leaders, I think is trust your team, build a great team, but then trust them. Also, of course, listen to your customers. I mean, I've found that you know most of the time when your customers are working closely with you, you're going to learn a lot that you 
wouldn't know without listening. <laughs> that seems basic, but I think a lot of time we want to talk about our technology. We need to listen to what our customers need our technology to do. And then also listen to our own people and team members about uh, new applications for that and how that could be used in ways that we may never have thought of on our own or would have never thought of on our own otherwise. Great, great advice indeed. All right, final question. And final question for our aspiring entrepreneur that are out there listening. Any words of wisdom you have given your 20 years journey and, and your experience here, what advice would you have for them? Always be, I think, you know, able to learn, right? My mother uh, is uh, in education and very young. And, you know, kind of uh, early days, she said that one of the most important things was learning to learn was really, really probably one of the most valuable things that you could do. And I think that as an entrepreneur, as a founder, you're constantly, if you're growing, you're dealing with situations that you've never had to deal with before and challenges you've never had to deal with. So learning how to listen, learning how to understand these new complex things that you're having to deal with is really, really important. And you, you may not always have the answers yourself. So learning how to listen to the team around you and your advisors, I think is, is really, really key. I think sometimes founders and CEOs have a expectation that they, they're supposed to know it all, that you know they're the one that everybody should look to and have it all figured out. Well, guess what? I don't have it all figured out. I'm probably never going to have it figured out. And guess what? None of the other tech CEOs uh, that I know do. Um, um, and some of the best ones you know, acknowledge that and work with their team. However, you know, being a CEO, I think, is about trying to enable your team to do the best work and always be uh, the biggest advocate uh, for your customer's success. Um, those are the two, I think, primary goals of a CEO. And being able to consistently stretch yourself to learn, not just react to how you may have thought about it uh, two months ago, two quarters ago, two years ago, helps you do that effectively. Yeah, no, uh, that is excellent. And one should always be learning. I, I totally agree with that. All right, JC, thank you for spending time with us. This was excellent. And we greatly appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Much, much appreciated. And I'm, I'm sure our audience would find this super valuable as we have. It was my absolute pleasure, Ari. Natalie, it was great meeting both of you. Thank you so much for giving Arturo and me a chance to share our story. Love to uh, be a guest anytime you want to talk more, but I hope your listeners enjoyed the time we spent together today. I know I did. Yep. We'd love to bring you back. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here today. If you like what you heard and are interested in more, visit us online at brainedbehind.ai and sign up for my monthly AI startup tracker. That's where I cut through the noise and bring you AI startups that are making tangible progress. Till next time, go out, be the brains behind AI.